Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Artworks representing animals, real or imaginary, religious or secular, span the full breadth and splendor of Japanese artistic production. As the first exhibition devoted to the subject, The Life of Animals in Japanese Art covers 17 centuries, from the 5th century to the present day, and a wide variety of media. At the symposium, held on June 7, 2019, in conjunction with the exhibition, Rory A.W. Brown discussed artistic depictions of unfamiliar animals in Japanese life. People in Japan's busy cities and agrarian villages long to see and possess strange and spectacular birds and beasts, whether from inaccessible parts of its far-flung archipelago or from overseas. Visitors and merchants from China, Korea, and the Netherlands often fed that hunger for the exotic with both domesticated and wild animals, whether as a tribute and prestige gifts for rulers and aristocrats or as pets traded to all levels of society. In doing so, they changed irrevocably Japan's perception and knowledge of the natural world and its ecosystem. Good afternoon and welcome back. Um, after the stellar performances this morning uh, by Professor Ambrose, Ambrose and Kimbra and Dr. Thompson, I have to say, as they say in Monty Python's Flying Circus, and now for something completely different. <laughs> I am very ignorant of Japan uh, by not by design, but by fault of education. I came to this interest late when I was involved in a couple of exhibitions at our museum at Boston College in the McMullen Center, because I'm an animal man. My love in life is animals. And so I was drafted in for a couple of our exhibitions at the uh, McMullen Museum at Boston College, I was drafted in to comment on the animals. And for me, that was very exciting. Not only because it introduced me to Japan, a country of which I knew sadly all too little, and its great art, but it also introduced me to its great wildlife. So what I hope to do briefly in my talk this afternoon is to introduce you to the fur and the scales, the feathers and the stinks of the animals. Um, and uh, the other reason I was very interested to find out about Japanese animals and wildlife was that, as you can probably tell from my accent, I come from that other island archipelago an imperial and imperious island, stuck, however, <laughs> off the western, northwestern corner of the Eurasian supercontinent. Um, the British Isles, if you like, are at the sort of bookend, just as the Japanese archipelago is the bookend at the other side of this great continent. And coming from Britain, and having lived in Britain and Ireland, I am acutely aware that our islands have a very poor fauna. Some of you may know that, unfortunately, St. Patrick drove 
all the reptiles except the natterjack toad out of Ireland. And the Ice Age accounted for quite a lot of others not reaching England. And the English and the Scottish between them succeeded in driving out most of the large fauna. So England and Ireland and Scotland and Wales do not have a very rich fauna. So imagine my surprise when I looked at Japan and realized that this vast archipelago stretching from subarctic Hokkaido in the north to Ryushu chain in the south, subtropical, had such an interesting and often endemic fauna, a fauna that was by its endemicity, characteristic native and found nowhere else. If you look at the Japanese mammals, and there are about 117 terrestrial species, if you look at Japanese mammals, 49 of them, 41% are endemic. That is, they are native to, peculiar to, and found only in Japan. That's an incredible richness. But as I say, it's due to the fact that Japan is a long pearl necklace archipelago, starting with Hokkaido and ending with the Ryukyu Islands, running, is, in a sense, from Siberia past the Korea, China, the Chinese coast, and the Korean peninsula, right down to Taiwan. And in that sense, Japan is the coincidence of two zoogeographical zoo zones. You have the Holarctic zone, the animals of the northern continents, meeting in that subtropical chain to the south, what is known as the Oriental zone, a zoogeographical term signifying the tropical fauna of Asia. <coughs> and so if we look at Japan, we see they have all sorts of interesting animals. They have, for instance, and we've seen in the preceding talks and we'll see again later, uh, they have, for instance, the Japanese macaque. The Japanese macaque is, apart from all of us here in the audience, and the speaker himself included, the Japanese macaque is the most northerly inhabiting primate. It is distinctive, short tail, red face and buttocks, scarlet with embarrassment, I suppose. It's thick fur and it's general intelligence. And it's been studied for a long time by Japanese uh, anthropologists and primatologists since the 1950s. They got in there before Jane Goodall. They started studying Japanese macaques before Leakey sent Goodall out to the chimpanzees of Gombe to find out how primates that might have been our ancestors behaved. So the Japanese macaque is a really interesting cousin of ours. But there are other, there are many other endemic species, as I've suggested. Now, most of them, and I'm going to spare you a catalog because I think most of you do not, are not that interested in shrews and, and moles. But there are a lot of endemic moles and shrews in Japan. But they also have very cute and Disney-esque 
Japanese dormice, Japanese squirrel, giant flying squirrel, the Japanese flying squirrel, the Siberian flying squirrel, the northern pika. Probably people don't even know what a pika is. A pika is a sort of rabbit or hare ancestor that lives high up mountainsides. We have a species of pika here in the Rockies as well. Um, they have the amami rabbit, found a dark form of rabbit found on the northern Ryukyu Islands, and it's endemic, and it's endangered. They have the Tsushimi and Iromote cats. Again, the Iromote cat is found only on one island between Taiwan and the Ryukyus. And it's very rare, and it's a dark form probably of the leopard cat. But they also have the charismatic megavertebrates that we in the British Isles so sadly lack. In Hokkaido, they have the widespread brown bear. In, in Honshu and South, they also have, as we've seen today in the presentations, the uh, collared or Asiatic black bear. I get to spare you some of the other animals, although I have to, I think, mention the sea otters, which are returning to Hokkaido in the north, because they are the ultimate in cuteness. If you've ever seen a sea otter cuddle its cub or smash an abalone shell on its chest, you'll know that they are the ultimate Disney animals. But then we must also mention the ungulates, the hoof stock. Japan is pretty well the last refuge, and again in this morning's excellent presentations, we saw several examples of the seeker deer. Seeker deer are small, but they range in size down the archipelago. More northern, the more northern forms are larger, huskier, the more southern forms are lighter, smaller, as is often found in the distribution of animals. But the seeker deer has been virtually exterminated over the Asian mainland. There used to be about nine subspecies. Six subspecies are still to be found in Japan, thanks in large measure to Shintoism and to other, as we've heard this morning in the presentations, Buddhist practices. The Shinto deer was saved from extinction in Japan. I actually have to say it was also saved by distinction in my own backyard in England, because English aristocrats in the 19th century liked nothing better than introducing exotic deer to their, um, to their stately homes. So the school I went to, the boarding school I went to, when we would go in, on runs through Knoll Park, the frequent exclamation was, oh dear, <laughs> as we came across a herd of spotted seeker. And lastly, but not least, and this is something that I would urge you all, if while you're here, go and see that other great exhibition, that other collection of living treasures. Go to the National Zoo, because there on the Asian Trail, you are going to find the Japanese giant salamander. Japan has the second largest amphibian in the world. America only has the third, so, so there. 
The, the Chinese giant salamander is about six foot and is becoming increasingly rare because people are eating it away. Uh, the Japanese salamander is a good five foot. It looks like nothing so much as a large slab of mud. <laughs> its name in Japanese, and perhaps somebody here can probably give me, it means, I think, giant pepper fish. Um, because when frightened, like many salamanders, small ones and newts, it exudes a sort of poisonous and slime. Uh, so that's why I think it's called the giant pepper fish, because if you eat it, it you get a, a reaction. It's spotted, and it's slow-moving and lives in the fast-flowing mountain streams. One thing I would like to suggest is that it may be the origin of the legendary kappa in Japanese legends, the strange water creature that wrestles, that is covered in spots and is slimy. And as I say, if you want to see one, hurry off to the National Zoo in its Asian trail. And that really brings me to another point that I want to make. Often, we don't know the animals of our own country. I was so pleased to hear Dr. Thompson today talking about the tanuki, that strange canid, that strange dog, the raccoon-like dog. I'm afraid I'm sort of unregenerate and still call it that. The raccoon-like dog is often confused, as Dr. Thompson pointed out, with the badger. There is actually a valid Japanese badger. It's thought to be either a, a separate species or a subspecies of the Eurasian badger, so often beloved of children's tales. There's a lot of confusion about animals because people who live in cities don't often know the animals of their country. How many of us here have seen or expect to see a bison or buffalo or bear wandering down the streets of Washington. So for the Japanese, many of the animals that are the pride of their country will only be known intermittently through folklore, through myth, through religion, or through occasional glimpses. And I'd like to suggest that perhaps one of the reasons that animals like the tanuki, the raccoon-like dog, and the fox, have such sort of mythical change-changing properties is that they are actually animals of the night, crepuscular animals active at dawn and dusk, animals that climb, animals that burrow, animals that are often not seen very often. But that can be true of so much of the Japanese fauna. Professor Marcon, in his great book on uh, the origins of Japanese natural history, and you'll hear from him later, but I hope he will forgive me quoting from him, uh, he shows a wonderful illustration from, I think, the 18th century for, of a flying fox from the Urushku Islands from the south. Flying foxes are fruit bats. They're called flying foxes because they are all off, they're so cute. They have little pointy ears, 
and dog-like faces, and they are covered in this wonderful warm fur. And, of course, they have wings. The wings are, in fact, modified hands. And they hang upside down like ordinary bats. But they're fruit eaters, flying foxes, and they're found across the tropical old world. They would not have been known to, they would not have been known to the Japanese of Honshu and the other main islands. So they were brought as curios. They're not only, they were brought as curios, they were illustrated as curios. They hung upside down and held in one foot a large fruit and gnawed it, holding it with the claw, the thumb claw of their wing. They are unusual, but they are also cute. I have to tell you, I kept one as a pet when I was a boy. And uh, it would hang from the curtains in my room. And when I would wa wander in with a banana, it would fly across and land on my head, hold onto its, my hair by its claws, and um, crunch down on the banana. So these animals, so it, what I'm trying to say is that the animals of the Japanese isles themselves might have often not been well known to the Japanese. Even animals like cranes, and there's that wonderful, wonderful screen by Mario Okoyo, the 772 screen of the, uh, the red-crowned cranes and the um, white-naped cranes. There are 12 red-crowned cranes, and I counted them yesterday, five white-naped cranes. Even cranes, those popular subjects of a Japanese painting, might not have been so well-known as actual animals because they are migratory, because they are confined to their wetland habitats, because they are nervous birds. And of course, they were also preserved as game for emperor. So what I want to suggest is that animals in Japan, exotics, should not just simply be defined in terms of animals from abroad. They should also be term defined in terms of animals that were unknown, that were cute, that were curious, that were brought in to the cities and the more urbanized villages and would have been unknown to people. But even, even animals that were more common in Japan itself might well have come in from the outside. This is a screen in the exhibition showing a muse probably owned uh, by um, a, an aristocrat um, where goshawks, that ultimate killer of the skies, were, were kept preparatory to going out for hawking expeditions. And young were often taken and raised in artificial nests, as you can see at the, over here, because you could then train the young to kill bigger game than they would naturally kill in the wild. Most carnivores, most predators, are going to kill things that are easy to kill. You know, we were discussing before lunch whether we should eat things, and we all agreed that chickens were relatively good to eat, and we didn't acquire too much bad karma from eating chickens. Um, Chickens are also relatively easy to kill. Well, catch, perhaps, less easy to kill. Um, but 
predators are the same way. They don't like to kill bigger game that might attack them and fight back. So goshawks in the wild uh, usually go for pheasants, hares, squirrels, smaller game. But of course, the daimyo and the samurai wanted to have the thrill of combat. They wanted their goshawks to go after the cranes, the herons, the ibis. Um, so they had to train them young. They had to take them young. Where do the best goshawks come from? Well, for hawking, they don't come from Japan. They came from China and particularly Korea because the mainland goshawks are, belong to two bigger subspecies. They're bigger, bulkier. And indeed, hawking itself was said to be introduced into Japan from, from, uh, from Korea. So even a familiar bird like the goshawk has a distribution in Japan. It is goshawk, goshawks are brought in from the outside because these have a special value and purpose. Now, you're going to say, well, why is he bringing in a rhinoceros? There are no, and why is he bringing in a rhinoceros by, in this well-known print by Albert Dürer? Because I want to introduce the Portuguese. If the Japanese could get many animals from China, the Chinese themselves had lost many of their charismatic megavertebrates. The elephants that once roamed quite far into China were confined about 2,000 years ago to southern China, and eventually only a remnant portion could be found in Yunnan province. Tigers and leopards could perhaps be bought from China and Japan, but usually they would arrive as dead skins. The Japanese, like us, in the West, hankered after seeing, as I said, the charismatic megavertebrates, the big animals that were brought back from the tropics. 1498, the Portuguese go the wrong way. They don't go to America. Actually, they go the right way, don't they? They go round the Cape of Good Hope, and they end up in India and soon establish, in the 16th century, the largest seaborne empire to date. But in doing so, they are merely inserting themselves, in a sense, into well-established trade routes that go from Malindi and the Arab ports of East Africa right over to Malacca and up, eventually, to China and Japan. And in doing so, they end up by, by inserting themselves into a network of trade of animals across the Red Sea, down the Red Sea, and up into the Indian Ocean, and up into, as I say, Northern Asia. This network has taken African zebras, or as you would say, zebras, to, to, uh, to India, to the Indian courts, and has even taken a giraffe from East Africa by way of, the, of Aden and the Indian courts right up to Beijing and to the Ming Emperor, where it is hailed as a kirin, an auspicious beast that has arrived to hail 
the approach of some deity or some other fortunate being. So this rhino was actually gifted by an Indian prince to the Portuguese viceroy at Goa, who promptly re-gifted it to his king, Manuel the Fortunate, back in Portugal, who promptly re-gifted it to Pope Leo X, his ultimate suzerain. Unfortunately, the rhino was shipwrecked on its way to Italy, and its bloated corpse is supposed to have been washed up on the beach, but nobody, I think, has ever been able to locate the rhino. But the image, fortunately for us, or perhaps unfortunately for natural history, as Professor Marcon may com comment on later, the image was, is preserved in this sketch by Dürer, who never saw the rhino himself and embellished it, providing it with an extra horn that's more like a sort of precious shell or something that he stuck on the rhino. And given the rhino, the, the Indian or greater one-horned rhinoceros has these great plates, but in the case of Dürer, he's made them into the sort of ornate armorer's plates that we were talking about lunch at lunch um, that his uh, fellow uh, silversmiths and armorers in Nuremberg would have worked on. So the rhino is a symbol of the Portuguese trade. What the Portuguese do, in a sense, as I say, they insert themselves in the trade, but they go north to Europe. That's an added leg. But the other added leg is obviously to Japan. And so we have in the exhibition this fine Namban screen from Kano Nezen, Namban screen proclaiming the arrival of the southern barbarians, the Portuguese, showing their arrival. But in this case, this screen is showing their departure. They're probably departing from somewhere in, on the Chinese mainland, possibly Macau, which they had seized. And as you can see, they are coming with an elephant. They're also bringing dogs, European-style dogs, and a parrot, and Arabian-type horses, swift horses, very different from the Mongol horses of the, the, the Japanese aristocracy. And here they are arriving, and they're arriving, and again they're bringing, as you can see, a deer, probably a sambar deer from the islands, the Indonesian islands, goats, which were probably provisions, but also parrots, in this case, probably cockatoos. I just want to point out, like, like it looks like a civet cat, a cockatoo, and another parrot, and a greyhound, all of which would have been novelties and astonishing to the Japanese whose dogs were more stocky and curly-tailed, rather like Charles nowadays. And, of course, a peacock. Peacocks, as we'll, you'll see from the exhibition, flourished in Japan. They did well. They were constantly exhibited in the peacock tea houses of the Edo period. They were great phenomena. They were naturalized in Japan. I think they can still be found wild on an island. 
but they are actually Indian in origin. And you can see with the peacock, you can see a, a darker complexioned attendant, probably with a feed basket. All these animals are being brought by the Japanese, uh, by the Portuguese, to Japan. The elephant is a particular interest. And in a sense, this talk has an elephant bookend. The elephant is there, it was brought to Hideyoshi. There's one brought to Hideyoshi by a delegation from Manila, by, and it's probably a Ceylonese ele elephant. It's brought and it comes and it salutes the shogun, or, and he's entranced by it because it responds to his name. He responds to his name, Don Pedro, Don Pedro, and he salutes the shogun. So the elephant is spectacular because it's weird and wonderful. It's only known, as you can see from the exhibition, from images brought in from China, perpetuated in Japan. It's only known as a strange creature with multiple tusks and strange claws. A real elephant is something to behold. Um, but an elephant also does something. So when the Portuguese bring one to Hideyoshi, it salutes him. You can react with elephants. When eventually the Portuguese replace the Japanese after the closing of the country in the 1640s, the Portuguese are expelled, the missionaries are expelled, they bring in the Dutch, are allowed only to trade through the island of Dashima in Nagasaki, but they still bring they take over the Portuguese empire in the Southeast Asia, and they bring in all sorts of exotic animals. And I just wanted to show this one because this is an extraordinary bird. Most of the birds they favored, they brought in for the shogun and for other people were, were songbirds that were collected, but this is a hornbill. Again, a wonderful bird. Hornbills live, uh, they, they partner for life. They nest in tree cavities, and the male immures the female in the cavity. So she's only got a little post box slit through which he feeds her. That's why they have to be mated for life. He feeds her through the post box while she sits on the egg and protects it. Eventually, the egg hatches, she emerges, they wall up the cavity, and then together they feed. Now, the Japanese wouldn't have known this, but the hornbill is attractive to them because it's such an odd bird. It's such a strange bird. Um, they're also very nice. There was one at the London Zoo that used to come down and to be scratched by me and go into a trance. The other bird, oops, I think we may have cut him off. The other, another bird in this, the other birds, of course, that were very popular were parrots, because again, parrots are birds you can do with, you can train them to talk. The bird that has been cut off on this is a minor bird, uh, which is a, a relative of the starling, but is one of the best mimics ever. It's a black bird with um, uh, lappets at the back. And I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go quickly through this. Lastly, of the extraordinary birds brought is the cassowary. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the cassowary is like no other bird. Um, as Professor Marcon has pointed out, the um, Dutch brought 17th century books of natural history by John Johnson to the shoguns in the 17th century. The shogun Yoshimune 
the eighth shogun in the early 18th century looked at these books and he started ordering animals from the books. Um, they had already, the Dutch had already brought a cassowary. This is the double wattled cassowary from New Guinea and the Aru Islands. Um, it's a jungle living bird, which is why it has that extraordinary cask on the top of its, oops, sorry. That extraordinary cask on the top of its head protects it as it runs through the undergrowth. It also has a killer claw. Those of you who've ever seen Jurassic Park and know, think of the velociraptors, the cassowary is like a velociraptor. In fact, I think somebody who owned a cassowary in America was killed by one recently. So it's that giant claw. Um, if you leave cassowaries alone, they're, they're okay, but they're ornery birds. And so the one was brought in 1647 to the shogun of the time, but Yossi... Yoshimuni also orders a pair for himself. Uh, I like the idea of sort of ordering your birds. You could do that at Harrods in, in London. You could go in and order a an lion or something. Um, but the cassowary is extraordinary because it, it has this almost uh, fur-like feathers, but it has this vestigial wing. It has virtually no wings, and it has, and this is, this is a testimony to the Japanese artist, it has these five quills, which are featherless, protruding from the vestigial wing. And I have gone over time, so I'm going to go very quickly through the rest. I'm not going to talk about the camel. I think that's probably going to come up in Professor Marcon's. Um, but I, want to, I just want to say the last of... I promised you an elephant bookends. The, the last elephant to come before, I think, the opening up of Japan with the Meiji Restoration in 1868, the last elephant to come, the last Dutch elephant to come, was a, was a Trojan horse elephant. It was brought in two ships, the Charlotte and the Mary, crewed by the English. It was the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. The English had defeated the French and their allies, the Dutch. The, East, the English East India Company invades Dutch Java and takes over. They therefore want to insert themselves into the trade with Japan. They want to open Japan, long before Commodore Perry, to English trade. So they send two ships under the Dutch flag to Japan with the crew speaking English but pretending to be Americans. It's about the last time an Englishman pretended to be an American. <laughs> they arrive and the Japanese and the Dutch in Doshima see through the uh, facade, but everybody plays the game. The English are given a cargo to take back, but they can't offload the elephant that they brought for the shogun because there are no deep water piers, and they, they can't get the elephant off the ship and into a small boat to row it across to Nagasaki. So the elephant has to be sent back post-haste, return to sender. However, there is a funny moral to the story. 
The man who dispatched the elephant, it was a Ceylonese elephant, was a man called Thomas Stamford Raffles. And Thomas Stamford Raffles was the prancing proconsul in Britain. He was the last of the nawabs, the last of the sort of merchant princes who lived like princes in the East. He had an exotic menagerie in the fashion of the Rajas of Java and the Rajas of India. He had a, um, he had a, a bear, a Malayan sun bear, a little cute bear that would sit at table with his children and drink champagne. <laughs> he had a spotted leopard. He discovered the Malayan uh, tapir. He, he, lived like, he lived like, as I say, one of the princes with his own menagerie, but he was also a representative of the new encyclopedic culture of Europe because he also published scientific papers describing in European and Linnaean terms the animals of the East. And when he returned to England, shortly before his death, he founded the Zoological Society of London. And the Zoological Society of London is, was responsible for the opening of the London Zoo in 1828. And the opening of the London Zoo in 1828 proved the model for the opening of the Ueno Zoo in 1882 in Tokyo, which marked under the Meiji's the, the making of a modern zoo a la European, where of course elephants were exhibited from 1882 onwards. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 